This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with a flight attendant who was on a 737 flight that crashed on landing. She tells us about the experience, how her training kicked in, and what you should know as an air traveler. In the news, JetBlue plans to purchase Spirit Airlines, Piper Aircraft and CAE partner on an electric aircraft, the need for 2.1 million aviation professionals is forecasted for the next 20 years, and an FAA NPRM looks at a secondary barrier to the cabin on Part 121 flights. Also, the numbers from EAA AirVenture Oshkosh 2022 are in. Here's a preview. It was a record year. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 710 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everybody. Looking forward to a um, eventful show tonight. Yes, quite. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's a, continu- a continuing. He's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group, and he's publisher at JetWine.com. Would you like you know help you through that continuing and and contributing and? Uh, well, I saw you chugging something out of that uh, <laughs> mug, and that kind of made me chuckle. And honestly, it was just water. It was yeah. just water. Thank you very much for uh, uh, having me back, and uh, good evening to everybody. I think we've got a very interesting uh, show tonight. I think so too. I can't wait. And uh, also to help us with that is another interesting guy, Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello. Great to be here once again. And yes, I too am excited, as is everyone else. So let's get started. I can't wait to talk to our guest. All right. Well, let's do that right away. Our guest this episode is Melissa Gonzalez. Now, Melissa is a flight attendant who was aboard Miami Air Flight 293, which crashed in 2019 while landing in Florida. The following year, Miami Air declared bankruptcy and ceased operations, but Melissa has continued on as a flight attendant for corporate gigs. Melissa, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. How are you guys? We're terrific. And we're, as as the others said, we're fascinated to have this conversation because we're going to take this opportunity to learn about something we hope never personally happens to us, an airplane <laughs> crash, but not only from someone who was there, but someone who was a member of the cabin crew. And so this episode is going to be not so much about the crash itself, but more about the role that Melissa was thrust into in that accident. But Let's start with a, a really brief description of how the flight ended. And Melissa, you can correct me if I get anything wrong. But uh-huh. on May 3rd, 2019, Miami Air International Flight 293, that was a Boeing 737-800, it overran the runway on landing at Naval Air Station Jacksonville in Florida. The plane came to rest in the St. John's River. Uh, the aircraft was a 
complete write-off, and the NTSB concluded that the accident resulted from hydroplaning after heavy rainfall on an ungrooved runway, although there are many other factors at play here. But let's go back to the beginning. Oh, good. Let's go back to the beginning, because here's how we should have started it. You should have said, it was a dark and scary night. <laughs> it did. It Which it was, actually. It was yeah. after 9 o'clock at night. It was dark. So, Melissa, this was a, uh, a military charter flight, correct? Correct, yes. And it was departing from Guantanamo Bay? Guantanamo Bay, yes. We had military and military family members on board. And was it a pretty full aircraft? Yes, we had 143 passengers. Um, actually, 136 passengers. It was 143 together with the crew. And the flight to uh, Florida, was there anything special? Was there anything remarkable, remarkable about the flight? Well, actually, when we first started the day, we started at Norfolk, uh, Virginia. Um, and before we took off, we were having issues with the AC. Um, so we had like a little delay before the flight. Um, the me- we usually flew with a mechanic on board. So the mechanic was um, trying to figure it out. And after, I-, I believe it was like an hour and a half or two um, delay, we took off. But towards the all, all the flight, we were having issues with the the AC. Like the AC wasn't working 100%. Ah, so it was getting pretty hot in the cabin. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was hot in the cabin. Yeah. Were the passengers getting grumpy? I, I probably would have been if I had been in that situation. Yeah, but the passengers were just sitting down. But us working, we were like super hot because we had full service. That on the, we had to open the ovens. It was it was really hot for us. For them, usually we we pass out hot towels. Instead, we were doing cold towels for them. Ah. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> well, that's a pr- isn't that a fairly short flight from Guantanamo up to Jack's? About an hour, maybe a little over. Oh, I think it was almost two hours. If, oh, if it was. Oh. Uh, we also had bad weather landing on Jacks, so I guess maybe that's why it took a little bit longer. What was the first indication to you that uh, this wasn't going to be a typical easy landing? Well, I had no idea. Even yeah. um, I landed and I thought everything was fine. I thought I was um, ready to go home because... Originally, we were supposed to do another leg because of the um, AC conditions. They told us that we were going to ferry the plane after landing in Jacksonville. We were going to ferry the plane back to Miami empty with no passengers so they could fix the plane. So I'm thinking finally, after a super long day, we I, we touched land. I see the, the airport and I'm thinking, you know, like finally, okay, we're going home. And then everything happened so fast. Those those next seconds was like, well, to me, it was long, but it, it, everything happened in a matter of seconds. Once we touched land to like finding ourselves in the water, pretty much. Uh, I was just going to say, I don't know if we mentioned it, uh, at least I didn't hear it, but th- this 737 uh, touched down on runway 10 at uh, Jack- Navy Jacks and, and went off the end of the runway. Uh, and and that's when things got really exciting. They they thought they were going to have enough runway, uh, but as Melissa said, they had an air conditioning. They they lost one of the packs, uh, so it was, they had trouble keeping the cabin cool. But they also had uh, one thrust reverser on the airplane that was inoperative, which is 
it's it's okay. You can fly the airplane that way. It's just that it puts certain restrictions on the crew. But the one thing the crew was not ready for was the fact that the um, the ungrooved runway had standing water on it. And when this airplane touched down, yeah, the, the crew had their hands full because not only did trying to pull one engine into reverse give them a kind of a directional control problem, but they found themselves sliding uh, because in the situation we're going to talk about, uh, the airplane didn't want to stop. It was like it was on ice. And uh, it suddenly it, it got to be the end of the runway. The airplane went in the river, and luckily, uh, I don't think that river was too deep, was it, Melissa? No, well, we we actually hit the uh, seawall first. Which oh, I, that's right. I think that probably, I don't know, saved us because we hit the seawall and then we ended on the water. After I realized that it wasn't that deep. So the plane, the plane sunk, but not only a little bit uh, on the back, but it didn't go, it didn't sink all the way. So there was there was water in the cabin or some water in the cabin, wasn't there? Yes, yes, yes. When I realized actually that I was on water, because remember, we landed. I'm thinking we're we're done with the day, but then all of a sudden we hit like we hear like a big loud noise, which I'm thinking is when we hit the seawall. The plane was uh moving side to side and then we end up in the water. Um I learned later that I m- might have had a little concussion, but I remember everything going black, like when all this, right after this. And I remember like not knowing what just happened, you know, like I thought we landed and then all of a sudden, like everything happened so fast. And, and I'm thinking, am I alive? Am I, cause everything went black. And then all of a sudden, finally I look to the side and I see my coworker and I'm thinking, wait, I'm, I'm alive. I'm still here. You know, like, I don't know where, but I'm, I'm, I'm alive. And that's when, I, like, all the chaos started after that. Yeah, tell us about the chaos. How how did the uh, how did the uh, the passengers initially react? Okay, so when I realized finally, like I said that I'm still alive. I look up to to the side and I see my coworker and I ask him, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And he's still like in shock. He's like, "Yeah, yeah." So I start running in the cabin, screaming, "Is everybody okay? Everybody okay?" Everybody was out of place, standing up still in shock, people, babies crying, people screaming. And then when I realize, I hear somebody saying something about water and I'm thinking, water, what do you mean water? And I go to the emergency exit and, and a guy tells me we're on water. And I'm like, what? Then I look to my feet and I was like, I had water all up to my ankles, but with all the adrenaline, with the chaos, it was dark. I couldn't even tell that I had water, that I was walking on water. Was there any announcement or indication from the pilots as to what happened? Or is it no, just you, know, you and like the I, passengers, the, 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 the cabin crew and the passengers in the dark? Remember, we, I was on the back. So in the front, um, there was it's a pretty long plane. So it was, it was dark. We had the emergency lights, but outside it was pitch black. There was thundering. So sometimes you would get a little bit of light in between. But I remember I couldn't hear what was going on in the front because everybody talking, screaming. So I, I remember I got up on the emergency um, seats and I screamed, um, I screamed to the front, do I evacuate? Because I'm thinking, I don't, I didn't understand why they were not evacuating on the front after I found out what happened. So I hear that they tell me, yes, get everybody on the wings, which I'm, I'm thinking is the captain. Hmm. 
So I started screaming to people to grab their life vests, put them on. Of course, not a lot of people pay attention to the uh, demos. So nobody knows at this time where the life vest is. We're helping people find the life vest, telling them not to inflate it inside the plane. Because that's one thing that they teach us. If they put, uh, inflate the life vest inside the plane and the plane starts sinking, you're going to get stuck in the plane. And of course, you hear people psh, psh, trying, like inflating the, the life vest. And you're screaming, leave, uh, don't inflate the life vest or whatever. So then I remember my, my coworker, I look back at him and I tell him we're on water. And then he goes, what, what do you mean we're on water? We're both not understanding how we ended up on water. And then he tells me, he, he was in a little bit of shock. He's like, on water, what do you mean on water? What do you mean we're on water? I remember walking outside the, the windows to see the conditions to see, so how do I start the, the, the evacuation? And it was all black. I looked to the front and I see that they tried opening the door in the front, but the slide was twisted on the left side of the plane. Nobody was coming out. Then I look to the back and I see once, so, uh, um, I see like rocks because of course we're, we're a little bit lower. And I see a seawall and I'm thinking, okay, if I get everybody on the rocks, we might make it out of this alive. Not knowing that we were so close from the airport because of port, like I still couldn't understand what had happened. Hmm. So then I go back and I tell my coworker, listen, I can see land. We're going to be okay. You know, like we, we got it. We, we have to do this and we're going to be okay. And then that's when he was like, okay, so you see land. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. I start telling the two military guys that were around my area to get me the life raft from the overhead bin. So they helped me. Luckily, since they're military, they know how to follow instructions. So that helped. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what would have happened in a regular flight that you yes, tell people. Yes. So they helped me put the, the life raft uh, down. Um, but of course, everybody's trying to help. Everybody's trying to do everything. And I'm trying to, there's a, um, a line that you have to attach to the plane. So when you inflate the life wrap, it doesn't, um, move away from the plane. So then, um, I'm trying to get the line and I hear, how do I, we inflate it? How do we inflate? It? And I'm thinking, no, we cannot inflate it until we have it outside. Cause I remember my training, seeing some videos of what goes wrong on airplane crashes or accidents. And that was one of the things that I remember that they inflated uh, a life raft inside the plane and people got stuck. And Yeah, it's not a good situation. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this, Melissa. To this point, how long had you been a flight attendant? I had been um, about six years. I had, uh, I had worked for another charter three years. And then I was on my second year, actually, with this company. So I would say five years. And tell us about the training that you received uh, for a situation like this. Yeah, we usually uh, do um, initial training, which is usually three to four weeks uh, based on the plane that we fly, the emergency equipment. Uh, and every year we do our recurrent training to refresh our memories um, on all the training. Um, of course, they train you on water emergencies, landing emergencies. But the water emergency is the one that you never think you're going to use, right? Like we had to memorize all the commands and all the emergency uh, steps. And the water uh, evacuation emergency is usually the longest one because you deal with life rafts, life vests, and nobody ever wanted to um, memorize that one because it's so long. So I, every every year we go over all the emergency um, 
procedures and and so I imagine there's quite a difference between training where you know it's training uh, and and a real life situation yeah. where you have as you, you know, the adrenaline like you were talking about mm-hmm. before and all the noise and confusion uh, that's going on. So I imagine the real the real life version is, is you know quite a bit different than what you encounter in training. So that means that people like you have to kind of not kind of have to start step up and provide some some leadership. Was since it was dark in the cabin and there was this issue with the front uh, the front exit not being available. Was there kind of coordination throughout the the airplane, or was it just sort of islands of cabin crew trying to do what they thought to do in their areas? Well, believe it or not, the training kicks in with the adrenaline and, and everything. Like, I never thought it would kick in the way it did, like all the things that we memorized and everything. Um, of course, in the front, they were having a situation because when they when impact, I guess when they hit the seawall and, the, and we landed on, and we ended on the water, the ovens flew out and hit the cockpit door. And they were stuck. The pilots were stuck for a while. So they had a bunch of food everywhere, the ovens. So the flight attendants in the front, they tried opening both doors. Both doors didn't open correctly, I guess, because since we maybe hit the seawall, the life rafts got damaged. I don't know what, what happened with that. And then the pilots got stuck. So mo- it, most of the evacuation, it was pretty much me and my coworker in the back because there were trying to, I guess, figure out um, everything in the front. And by the time we started um, getting people out, they were able to walk and then start helping us um, at the end. So there was there were no lights in the cabin at all? Yeah, yeah. We have the emergency lights. And the the ilum- the, the floor usually has a photoluminescent right. light. But it's not... How can I say this? It's not dark. the same light. Exactly. It was still dark. Yeah. Outside, it was night. It was pitch black. So we had some light, but not super bright. What, if you were in the back, it, if you had walked to the back door, was the water above the, the window? Uh, no, in no, the no, back? no. In it the wasn't back, that high. In the back, I think I had probably, when, when I started the, the evacuation, it was up to my ankles, the water. Towards the end, it was a little bit more, but most of the time I was on the wings and, and helping people out. So, and in, in a water evacuation, you move everybody up because they are not supposed to be on the last row because the plane starts sinking through the back. So when, when I first started that we had just uh, gotten on the water, I had water up to my ankles. And then after I do know it was, there, it was, it has sunk a little bit more, but not, it never got to the water. I'm not sure after we left, after, I don't know after, but, but yeah. So during the evacuation process, were you in the plane or out on the wing? Where were you? Most of the time I was on the wings because I, I opened two life rafts and I, I filled one. And then the second one um, didn't get full because in the other wing, I had the other flight attendant doing the same thing. So we got everybody out through the wings from both sides. I was able to open two life rafts and I believe he did one. And by that time, um, the firefighters got there almost towards the end when we had like maybe seven, eight people still at the wing, which were the guys helping me put people on the on the life rafts. Ah, so out of the plane onto the wing, then off of the wing into the life raft. Into the life raft, yes. 
Were the passengers pretty orderly or were they panicked and pushing each other? There were some. No, but I, like I said, it was a military flight. So luckily yeah. they, they were very, they were, they were very helpful. They follow instructions. We also had military and their families too. So we had two infants. Um, we had a few, um, older people, but I believe with all the chaos and everything, it was, it ended up being not so disorganized. It was pretty organized. Did you have the situation we often read about with passengers trying to bring their overhead luggage with oh, them yeah. as they deplane? Yes. And I presume you told them not to. Of course, especially on the life raft. So yeah. um, you have to tell women to take off their heels because they could puncture the um, – one of the mommies wanted the um, the baby's bag. And she's like, nobody's a baby. I'm like, you don't need it right now. <laughs> So, yeah, that's one of the things that you constantly keep telling them, leave your bags behind, leave your bags behind. Of course, some of them try to sneak them in and some of them end up doing it because I had so many people. But most people listen because um, you tell them once and they usually listen. And what was your mental state at this time? Did did you feel confident or did you? Believe it or not, I think I was in like training mode, like until I was out of the plane. That I, that that they that I got on the firefighters uh, boat that we actually like uh, started moving that I saw the plane on the water. It's when it actually like I was like, oh my god, like this really happened, you know? Like in the moment that people are looking at you to h- tell them what to do, especially because my other coworker had only been working for six months, so he was looking at me. Usually, you look to like like. Okay, the the senior flight attendant, which is in the front, but at, at this time, I like I was like I looked at him. He was like, "Okay, what do we do?" It so I had to like pretty much take charge because I had more experience than him, and and it, it was like, "Okay, if I don't do this, we're gonna we don't know if the plane's gonna catch on fire. We don't know if the plane is gonna sink." So I I had to like block my real emotions and get in training mode because. Uh, until the last second, because I, I was I was standing on the wings and you could see on the water like fuel. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know if this thing is going to catch on fire any second. I didn't know that we were not that deep, that the plane wasn't going to sink. So like I'm trying to do everything as soon as possible to try to get everybody out as soon as possible and trying to help my coworker. Which he, he at the beginning, he was on cho- in shock, but then he would look at me and he would like follow my lead and he like. He did amazing for the small time that he had been flying. What were the two flight attendants up in the front doing? Were they trying to shove people back to the to the overwing exits? You know, I'm not sure. I know at the beginning, beginning, they were trying to uh, get all the stuff out of the way, trying to open the, the flight deck door. And then towards the end, I know one of the flight attendants came and was helping me with the second raft. Um, and, and, in my side, but inside, I don't know what was going on. Cause I'm in the outside trying to get people in the wings. And then I remember two, uh, passengers jumped on the water cause two of the, the dogs were in the belly of the plane and the owners jumped in the water trying to see if they could open the, oh. the, the belly. And obviously they, they couldn't. So the other flight attendant was super nervous, trying to scream at them to come back and get in the life raft. So I, I mean, I don't know what they were doing uh on the front most of the time but i know they they were that, those are the two things that i know they they did so the uh the, the emergency response uh, people uh took some time do you have any idea how long it was before 
before Look, they arrived? If I tell you, to me, it was like 10 years, but <laughs> I, I don't yeah. know. Um, I, I remember yeah. when they, when the boat got there and, and also I think they went first to, to the other side and they got to me after. So I don't know exactly what time they got there because I, when I saw them, I only had seven people left in my wing, which were the guys helping me put people on the life ramps. So, um, when they got there, they were like, Oh, get in the boat. And I'm like, no, no, I'm the flight is. And then I have to make sure that nobody's left in the plane. And they're, they're like, no, no, we're here. So we're taking over. But at the same time, you're training. They tell you, you got to make sure nobody's left behind. And I'm like, wait, wait, I got to go back to the plane. Make sure that. Yeah. That. Good for you. That's yeah. I would not have given up that responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I guess they're training. Maybe is when, when they're there, you got to, you know, like hmm. do whatever they'd say. So then. Once I got there, we checked that there was nobody left in the plane. The people that was left in the wing, they got on the on the boat. And then that's when reality kind of hit like, oh, my God, I was just in a plane accident. The plane is in the water. How, how did all this happen? Where were all the passengers, you and all the passengers taken? Once I put the passengers on the rafts, we would push the rafts towards the... Um, seawall and the firefighters were taking them off from the raft to the through the rocks and up to the um, to the airport to the um, to the streets i guess yeah Yeah. so then after that once we got on the boat they started asking how many passengers they took us on a on a like a school bus to a hangar like a military hangar because that was a military i guess base to me that's when i started getting nervous because when when i was getting away from the plane I'm thinking, oh my God, I hope nobody fell on the water that you, you don't see, you know, like I'm thinking, I hope everybody made it. I don't know what happened in the other side. Um, you see like blood everywhere. You see like the life rafts because they were already um, checking on passengers. And I, we got to the hangar and this whole time I'm like super nervous. And until they didn't count passenger and they told us, okay, we have a full count. It's when you're like, Okay, we could breathe. Everybody made it. Um, unfortunately, the dogs didn't make it. But when they told us, the moment they told us, I remember the we have 143 passengers. That's when, like, oof, like, yeah, we did it. You know, like, we made it. Oh, was there a, a lengthy process? You know, at the airport, there uh, debriefing uh, the accident after? and all. Yes. Okay, so after. We got to the hangar and most passengers were hugging us, thanking us. There were people crying, everybody emotional. After they did the count, they took the crew to a military um, hospital because they needed to do drug tests and alcohol tests. Sure. So they had us there waiting forever until somebody came and and did that. So we couldn't go anywhere. After that, I don't know what happened with the passengers because they took us to um, to the hospital. And then they had to get us checked because... I ended up with a sprained back and my other coworker had bumped her head and like everybody got checked. And I read that there were somewhere on the order of 21 injuries. What kind yeah. of injuries were there? There were minor injuries. Um, I think by, for the accident that we had, um, I didn't see anybody like, um, I didn't see, but I don't know after, but I saw like cuts, like I guess the people that were in the window, some people bumped their, their heads. I know the mechanic was on the front and his finger, like he fractured his finger. Um, for the most part, that's what I, I know of. I had a sprain back. My coworker, she, 
the phone came off from the from the crew area and like hit her in the head things like that but it wasn't nothing was um nothing was super did you see the passengers again that night before you left yeah before we left in the hangar um yes they most of the i remember one passenger um we were like almost landing and I hear steps behind me and I, I look to the back and he's trying to go to the bathroom. And I was like, you need to sit down right now. We're about to land. So the guy looks at me like, okay. And then he sits, sits down. And then we were in the hangar. And after he comes and he says, thank you so much <laughs> for telling me to sit down. You probably saved my life. And I'm like, um, yeah, this, these are the things that we deal pretty much day by day, but they don't know how dangerous it could be on a landing or a takeoff. So, so then you ended up in a hotel that night or? Well, no, it was actually, we were in the hospital until like five in the morning because it took forever to get us checked for everything. And the company said, do you guys want to go home? You're going to want to go to a hospital. And we were so like exhausted, but emotional and everything. We just wanted to go home. So they booked a commercial flight for us. And it was funny because we were walking in the airport with like half uniform, half scrubs from hospitals. <laughs> and like you could tell we were like kind of crew, but something had like a scary horror movie crew. And most people knew that we were the because it came out all over the news, the accident. And people were like, were you guys from the accident? Yeah, we had like like makeup all over the place, our hair, because we got wet because it was raining outside. So people knew, especially when we got on the plane and the crew that, that was on, on our flight, they were like, you guys were from the accident? We're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they flew us back that same day. So were, were you chill at this point? Or, or I mean, I've been in, in an automobile accident, a pretty serious one before, and uh, driving again didn't bother me, but every time I drove past that exact yeah. location, I could just uncontrollably feel myself, you know, my heart rate in uh, jumping yeah. and things like that. Did you ever have any kind of reactions like that? Yes. Believe it or not, the first, I would say 48, 72 hours, I was like, I don't know. I was like in a cloud. Like I still couldn't believe everything that happened, happened. But when we got on that flight, I wasn't like super afraid, but my coworkers were, so I'm trying to calm them down. Um, and then I remember on landing, we were all like looking at each other, like hoping for those breaks and like, but it, it, we just wanted to get home. And then after that, like we were, we got home and like a day later, they tell us, no, you guys have to fly back because the NTSB wants to interview you guys. Mm -hmm. So then we had to get another plane back. <laughs> Yeah. The like within a few hours. Wow. Wow. Did you sleep at all after you got home? I couldn't sleep. I would say for the next five days. Oh, <laughs> I believe it or not, I was I was in the interview and I was like, like I, I don't know how I, I was awake, but after an accident like this, I don't know if it happens to everybody, but you're like on a cloud. I don't know. You're like people talk to you and people and, and you're still like to me, I was I was on a dream or a nightmare for a few days. Hmm. After you had time to you know kind of clear your mind of it uh, to the extent that you could, 
and, and you probably replayed it in your in your mind over and over. Were there, was there anything that you thought of that you might have you would have done differently? Let's say, you know, if, if heaven forbid you had to do it over again. Well, it, not that I would would do different because luckily everything went well. But you start thinking for some reason. The whole time I'm thinking, oh my God, did I? Because since the NTSB is going to interview you, you're nervous. Did I do everything how I was supposed to do it from the books, like word by word? You know, like you start, like you start getting nervous. But I would say I didn't do a hundred percent by the book, maybe like ninety five percent. But there was things that you you can't do it by the book because not every situation is the same. Hmm. Like when you have the life raft and you in training, they tell you, you have to find the knife and cut the line, but the land was so close. You're not going to find spend time finding a knife and cutting it. So I just unhooked the thing. I threw, you know, like you do certain things, you do them different, but then you start thinking, I hope I'm, I don't get in trouble and all this. That's about it. Yeah. Well, I thought you would have said that uh, you would have called in sick that day. That would be the one <laughs> thing you do differently. You know, actually it's funny, but. I was not supposed to be on that flight. Oh. I had, I was scheduled vacation and I ended up canceling my vacation because I had a biopsy done and I didn't want to be thinking about uh, the results and everything. And I called my boss and said, look, I, I don't need to go on vacation. So if you need to assign me on a flight and that's the flight that I, <laughs> that I ended up. <laughs> you know, after the accident, did, did it ever cross your mind to not fly anymore? No, it never did. And people think, my family especially, think I'm crazy. Like my dad tells me every day that I tell him, Bob, I'm going to be here. When are you going to stop flying? <laughs> but I there's, I love my job. And not only that, but I, I think if I was in a plane accident and I, everybody came out alive. And, you know, like there's, I think, I still think the planes are safer than getting in a car mm. yes. that we do every day. Yeah. So, and... For some reason, I don't, I'm not afraid. Well, the odds of being in two aircraft accidents are pretty slim. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's like one in a million. What are the chances that I'm going to have two accidents? Exactly. I, I'd like to fly with you on every flight because I know you're safe from here on out. <laughs> yes. Well, but really, when you think about it, how many times have we talked about commercial aviation accidents and, and there's no crew around to talk to? Because they yeah. didn't survive. This yeah. is a rarity. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, did your family, I, I realize they were trying to get you to quit, but did they ever say, well, you know, Melissa, that <laughs> night I think somebody was watching over you. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. My mom especially. She was, that was, she was the one that I, I remember telling, I called my husband and I'm like, please, before my mom sees the news, to let her know that I'm okay. Because my mom uh, was a nervous wreck. So, yeah, my, my mom, I know that she would be praying every night that I, I would go flying. Like every time I told her I had a flight, I know that God was watching over me for sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, Melissa, for uh, the folks listening to this who are likely to be passengers on a commercial flight, what advice do you have for them? I mean, if if uh, as a passenger you find yourself in this kind of a situation, mm -hmm. uh, what are the big things they should keep in mind or do or not do? I always tell like people when they ask me this question, but when we do an emergency demo, 
people take it for granted. They believe that the, because they've been on a plane a hundred times, they don't have to be watching. But every plane is different. Every emergency, every plane has different emergency exits. Their, their life vests are in different places and they don't realize that two minutes of watching the, the, the demos could save their lives and the people around them. So that's one thing that I, even me as a, as a flight attendant, every time I get on a plane, which sometimes I have to commercial, I pay attention, especially after the, the accident, I pay attention and I know, I want to know where the emergency um, exits are, where the, they place the life vest. And that's something that would have saved a lot of time actually on our evacuation. You know, it's interesting. I started watching the briefings more intensely a few years ago. And even though I've I've been on commercial airlines for probably close to 50 years. I discovered I learned something, which is that little oxygen mask. It doesn't just go over your mouth. It goes over you know, your, your nose and yeah, mouth, and not mask, just yeah. your mouth. And, you know, I don't, you see people in accidents and they've got it just on their mouth. Yeah. They're not paying attention. Yeah. How long was it before you uh, flew again as a flight attendant after the accident? I was, I, since I had a sprain back, I was out for, I believe, uh, nine to 11 months. I don't remember exactly. Um, and the funny thing is that I got back to flying after the doctor cleared me from all the therapies and everything. I got, I went back to flying. I flew that same flight to Jacksonville. And then, uh, two days later, the company went out of business and that was my last flight. <laughs> Because of COVID, um, they they went out of business, and that was the last flight that I had with that company yes. before I started co uh, doing corporate. And how about that switch to corporate? Uh, did did you do that because that was all that was available, or did you just decide that you wanted no, to do that? No, that was actually one of my dreams always to to oh. do corporate, but I didn't know where to start, how to go. And then my husband thinks, like I said, um that I'm a hero and that I should be doing so many things after the experience that I got from the accident. So he's always telling people about, about my accident and everything. And he's like, babe, you should be training our flight attendants. You should be like, anybody would want to have you as a flight attendant. If I was a millionaire with my plane, I would pay extra to be, um, have you, uh, as my flight attendant and he's always sending me these things. So actually his brother one day was talking, I guess, about my accident, um, to a corporate pilot. And that's how I ended up flying for this family. Um, because he said, I'll oh, give her my number. And then, um, after that, I, I started flying for them and I've been flying for them like, uh, for a year and a half. Uh, I just have one question. Now you're a corporate flight attendant. What, what kind of airplane are you on? I'm, I'm flying a global. Oh, global holy <laughs> smokes. Well, nothing like uh, getting at the top end. Uh, but <laughs> now, can you tell us uh, what do you like better or, or what, what's different about being a corporate flight attendant as opposed to a commercial airline kind of flight attendant? Yeah, I mean, I was never a commercial. I always flew for charters. Oh, charter. So it's, it's a little bit different, yeah. Um the things that I miss of charter is obviously having like a, a crew, you know, you, your friends, like flight attendants, because you're, you're the only flight attendant um, usually in corporate. Um, but of course, what I like the best is the pay. <laughs> it pays really good. Um, you're pretty much your own um, boss because they call you. If you are available, you go. If you're not available, it's okay. So do, having my own schedule, I'm actually flying uh, well, not in the summer. I've been flying a lot, but 
usually I fly less and then I make more. And it, it's another type of flying, especially I've been blessed. Like I've, I've been lucky enough to have like the, the people that I fly the most. It's like an amazing family that, I mean, I've been really lucky to fly for them. And they're super nice, respectful people. And, and it's different because when you fly with different people, some people, I mean, this is their plane. So they know when they board, what to do, where to sit, you know, it's different. You don't have to like guide them. It's another completely type of flying. Okay. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your story with us and our, and our audience. I think it's been really fascinating. We were uh, really anticipating, really excited about having you come on the show. And thank you guys for having me. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure. Is there any place on uh, social media or anything that you would want to share with, with the audience? Um, no, well, as of right now, I don't have anything, but like I said, my husband has this big imagination and plans for me and he's making me, he wants me to write a book about the accident. Uh So in the future, I would probably have something, but we're still just But nothing right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll have to be sure to keep us informed. And so if something like that does happen in the future, we're going to want to know about it. Of course, you guys will be the first. (laughs) Thank you so much. Did we ask any stupid questions? No, no, no. You guys oh, okay. did awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Melissa. Thank you. Have have a good night. Bye bye. See ya. Bye bye. On to the aviation news. First, uh, an update. This is from thepointsguy.com, many other sources as well. Spirit terminates frontier merger deal, paving paving way for a possible JetBlue acquisition. Of course, Spirit and Frontier had been talking. JetBlue came in with an unsolicited offer. And Spirit had actually been urging shareholders to accept the Frontier offer. But the support just wasn't there. There were several votes. The final vote was canceled. Spirit terminated the agreement. JetBlue came in with their all-cash deal. Of course, it still requires federal approval for the merger. Do you guys think this is uh, where it should have ended up? It's a soap opera. (laughs) We've been chasing this story since early in the year, and it's got twists and turns, and, you know, it's just kind of been interesting to uh, to follow. Here in the story, it says that uh, the CEO of JetBlue raised their offer five times for Spirit, uh, and it's just it's fascinating how uh, it was kind of back and forth and back and forth. I can't remember a merger in the airline industry that there was this convoluted. Now I understand in other industries this you know, probably isn't totally unusual, but this has been quite the surprise. This is going to be an interesting one, uh, assuming it gets through, because the the uh, JetBlue network and the Spirit network are about as different as oil and water. Uh, Spirit's always been a low-cost, no, not a low-cost, an ultra-low-cost carrier, which means you pay for the peanuts, I think. I don't know what that means. But uh, but then to, to mix with uh, JetBlue that, that has flown a very different kind of product with room in the cabin for, for the people and uh, uh, many things included in the airfare, uh, I bet the uh, merging is going to be real interesting when these two come together. So they both fly a lot of Airbus aircraft, 
but as you, you know, suggest, Rob, the Spirit Airlines aircraft are configured really differently with much higher densities. But lots of A320 family aircraft in both fleets. I, I, I kind of get the sense that one thing that JetBlue is really picking up here is aircraft and pilots or, or yeah. crew. And that's almost really what they're buying because it seems like they're going to reconfigure the Spirit airplanes to look more like JetBlue air, airplanes. Well, they're going to have to. I mean, I, I remember we, we talked about this a couple of months ago, and, and I said, uh, boy, that's a real – I didn't think that was making sense because I said that's a really expensive way to buy airplanes. But uh, I can't remember who it is I heard from Spirit – I'm sorry, from uh, JetBlue say, no, we want them for their airplanes and their pilots. And I went, okay, well, so much for my idea. But uh, so again, I, again, but I think making – this network work when one company is devoted to, well, for lack of a better analogy, Fords and Chevys, and they've always been the other. And just bringing them all together doesn't mean it's going to work. You've got seniority issues for pilots and flight attendants and uh, aviation technicians to to bring together, and I the pay structures are very different. I don't know because that mean maybe it means that just all the JetBlue tickets are going to be more expensive. And I, any of us who've been through corporate mergers knows these are not fun. They are painful for the employees because ultimately you have two different, uh, completely different sets of systems. I mean, if you think it from a, just an IT standpoint, JetBlue probably has, oh, I don't know, probably eight or 10 major different uh, IT systems. They've got things that the pilots log into, things that the maintenance people log in, things that the dispatchers and the schedules log into. And then you look at Spirit and Probably many of their systems are different, and ultimately, usually it's the company that's being acquired that has to eventually uh, migrate over, and that's just painful. Everything that you know in terms of interacting with uh, computers changes. You know, user interfaces are different, and it's just painful. So I, I really feel for those folks, but you know, I hope uh, it gives us more, better service here in the U.S., though I'd have to guess that uh, – Prices are going to go up. I just can't imagine that JetBlue is going to keep Spirit intact with uh, you know th- that kind of root system and charging low fares. I'm I'm thinking fares are going to go up. Oh, I think so too. Well, I understand this would make them or the com- combination of the two the the fifth I think largest airline fifth, in the United fifth States. largest correct yeah yeah so uh, I don't know if that's below the radar screen of the uh, you know federal uh, folks who look at mergers and and competition and all or not i'm really curious to see how that how that plays out and how long that takes to play out could could be a while before we see actually you know anything anything happen but the uh, as i mentioned it's an all cash offer $33.50 a share that's what uh, jetblue is offering which um, at least at the time of uh, of this piece that was about a 30% premium on the share price which uh, you know, that should be pretty attractive. Wow. So you could have bought Spirit for 33 bucks. Had I known that, I would have bought the company. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, per share, per share. Per I'm share. Sorry. It's actually $3.7 billion deal total. Yes. All right. Well, next item, uh, Piper Aircraft partners with CAE to create electric aircraft STC. Rob, this is an interesting link up. Yeah, this came out at uh, at AirVenture 
last week, and I just saw it, and I thought, what a cool idea uh, that uh, I forgot they said, um, I think since the beginning of time, there are some 28,000 PA-28 aircraft, which is the uh, uh, manufacturer's uh, ID for a, a Cherokee, an Archer, uh, a Warrior, what whatever it might be. Um, but to switch them all with an STC to electric, I thought, wow. So that means not only finding an electric motor that will power uh, the uh, PA-28, but uh, I imagine that means somehow completely removing the uh, fuel or the uh, fuel tanks and uh, putting the batteries maybe in the wings. I, I didn't even know there were batteries that would uh, be able to power that, but I thought this is going to be such an interesting story to follow uh, that when the STC comes out, uh, when it, whenever it does, we, simply, we have to have uh, their people on the show. And one of the interesting things about it is that uh, the battery packs are being sourced from H55, which is a company that was founded by one, if not both of the pilots, I think it was just one of them, who flew the Solar Impulse around the world, which was an oh, all-solar wow. aircraft. So that was uh, Andrea Borschberg, I believe, is the one who started H-55. Uh, and, of course, when that airplane flew around the, the world, one of the places it stopped was Moffett Field, which is right here in my, my town in Mountain View. Uh, we later had Andre come to uh, speak at a meeting of the uh, Aero Club of Northern California. In fact, he brought his son along. His son was at the time looking, at, uh, even though they were Swiss, he was looking at jobs here in Silicon Valley. So kind of interesting to see the, the connection. All of that technology from Solar Impulse has led to this new company, which is supplying the batteries. And as for the motor, uh, they're looking at a Safran motor, USTM 100 electric motor sourced from Safran. H55, of course, is uh, Switzerland-based. I think um, CAE is uh, is a pretty large operator of Piper Archers, so so they know the airplane. Well, they're also, they're a huge uh, aviation training company. I mean, flight safety and CAE are the major players in uh, uh, corporate and uh, commercial aircraft pilot training and mechanic training, uh, but they have other divisions as well. Uh, where they take people from now, they take people from no experience at all. So they could even teach a guy like me how to fly, uh, <laughs> despite how much money that would probably cost them. But uh, so again, you know, CAE is uh, is one of the big players because they are, uh, you know, the international side. Uh, we, flight safety is mostly based in the U.S., although there are flight safety facilities in other countries. But CAE is absolutely everywhere. And I think one of their big divisions is producing the large multi-million dollar simulators that are used by flight safety in other places around the world. So that's a that's a big business for them. And they're what, based up in Canada? I'm not sure if they produce. I think flight safety builds their own sims, but I might be wrong. But, but again, uh, you know, Bombardier uh, for, for the globals, uh, and I mean, those are all CAE simulators. Uh, they they have that uh, because they're up in uh, in Canada, which is the country that even we Americans can't uh, vi- can we visit Canada yet? I don't think we can. I, <laughs> I still think we don't can, think Rob. we can go up there. Can we? Okay. Yeah, I think um, so. 
but uh, but again, they have a very different kind of a an international uh, accent than than flight safety does. Not not bad, not better, just different. All right, we have a new forecast. This came from Boeing. It's their pilot and technician outlook, twenty twenty two to twenty forty one. AOPA has a piece on it. Boeing forecasts need for, now get ready for this, 2.1 million aviation professionals. So this is uh, about the commercial aviation industry. So Melissa is not included in this. It's minus business aviation and helicopter operations. And the outlook, the forecast, uh, says there's a need for 602,000 new pilots, 610,000 new technicians, 899,000 new cabin crew, uh, and this is over the next 20 years. So, I mean, we've seen the Boeing forecast in the in the past, and these numbers are just kind of staggering. Did you see the part down at the bottom there where they said that there's no additional need for any aviation podcasters? Apparently, there are enough <laughs> out there, and the, there's no need for any further competition because there are just some great shows out there already. Uh. Yeah. Oh, and there are so many podcasts now, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, uh, there are quite a few. Everybody's a podcaster. <laughs> but think about that. Uh, 2.1 million. I mean, think, guys, how old will you be? Melissa, we won't ask you this, but <laughs> how old will the rest of us be in 2040? I mean, I'll be 47 Dead. by then. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> uh, I'll be lucky to be alive in 2041. But, yeah, big numbers. Now, they also point out that 25% of airline pilots will reach the mandatory age 65 requirement or re, yeah, requirement in the next 10 years. Uh, many technicians are also reaching retirement-eligible age. So, uh, clearly, and as you would expect, Boeing is not only looking at how many positions are required for the demand they forecast, but uh, what is the fall-off of the existing population of professionals because of retirement, either mandatory or otherwise. Uh, There's a a few differences. Uh, Boeing says the the forecast is uh, lowered for pilots by 10,000 from last year's report. Of course, 602,000 plus or minus 10,000 is still a lot. But um, they also noted that the, the data now excludes Russia and Central Asia in the new outlook, Russia, I can See, I imagine why. why. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi's trying. Okay, never mind. Yeah, I didn't no mean politics. To say that. No Sorry, politics. don't 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 yell at me. It just it just came out. And related to this, I just saw a few days ago that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham has introduced a bill in Congress to increase the age of uh, the mandatory retirement age for airline pilots from sixty five to sixty seven. So if that goes through, then that creates a little bit more supply for airline pilots. Ain't going to happen. Really? Okay. Not a chance because Alpa Alpa is against it. If you had the um, pilots union and perhaps any other support organization uh, on board with that, I'd say possibly. Uh, but uh, with Alpa absolutely dead set against it, uh, because they don't think it's going to solve anything. Uh, it's just going to make things more difficult because, uh, of course, U.S. pilots cannot fly uh, as PIC internationally uh, if they're older than 65. So then that's going to throw 
the airline scheduling system into chaos and more junior people are going to end up in the left seat with more experienced people in the right. It's, they just see it as a, a formula for disaster. And, and I don't believe that there's been anybody except Lindsey Graham that said, yeah, this is a good idea, except the airlines, because the airlines will do anything to get more bodies. And yet somehow they were able to make it work when they went from age 60 to 65 about a dozen years ago. What was, what was different there, the, the mismatch with international requirements? Well, the, the, we, we didn't have a mismatch because it was 65, I believe. At, no, wait, I think, it, I think it became 65 internationally around the same time. I don't believe it was. Uh, but, but again, there was no pilot shortage then. Uh, we didn't have that, uh, that chaos uh, you know, ha- hanging above people's heads. Um, but also, uh, they also had the union in favor of it. ELPA signed on to it. I don't know all the intricacies, of the politics of it. Uh, but again, this time with ALPA going, eh, eh, it's, it's probably never going to happen. Is there a mandatory retirement age for commercial or, I mean, sorry, for uh, business or corporate? Parts? No, Mm-mm. no. So long as you can pass the, uh, the medical, the medical uh, it's, it's like flight attendants. Flight attendants can fly until they're, uh, corporate-wise, I think they can fly until they're 92 uh, so that like, I wanted to see Melissa's Melissa. making a face. So Melissa, you've only got about seventy years left. I hope I don't have to fly uh, on <laughs> No, but uh, business aviation is uh, uh, very much a. Uh, uh, if you can pass the test, uh, we'll keep you. And um, I, I don't know how many pilots. I don't think there's really a great many business aviation pilots flying much past 65. I know there are in uh, some charter organizations. Uh, I've got a friend that retired as a captain from UPS last year, and he's flying a Hawker uh, locally. And he's, uh, what is he now? He's 60. He's going on 67. But he's in really good health. And uh, again, it's it's kind of dependent on whether the pilot can maintain the standards or not. Hmm. Interesting. All right. We have a story from another story from the pointsguy.com. Uh, this is, I believe it's out as an NPRM now. The FAA introduces rule requiring airlines to have a secondary flight deck barrier. And this has been proposed as a rule, an FAA rule. And this would apply to commercial airplane, airplanes designed to improve pilot safety, they say. Uh, currently, I think everybody knows the cockpit has a, uh, a, a reinforced locked door. Obviously, though, when a pilot or a flight attendant or any, you know, is entering or leaving the cockpit, the door's open. Uh, So apparently that's considered to be of sufficient uh, vulnerability that uh, they're looking at adding a second door or a second barrier of some kind. So if you're, you're, let's say, going into the cockpit, open the first door, the first barrier, walk in, lock it behind you, unlock the one in, in front of you and proceed into the cockpit. Well, th- this is actually not new. Uh, this particular uh, push for it is, but uh, the the push for, uh, the initial push for secondary barriers happened uh, not long after 9-11. And uh, many of the, uh, uh, the, the widows of the pilots uh, that lost their lives that day uh, were uh, involved in, kind of like what we saw after the Colgan accident in a, in a group to try to 
to uh, convince the FAA that the if if those uh, secondary barriers or anything like that had been installed, those hijackers never would have been able to get to the cockpit. Uh, but they were never able to actually make it uh, make it happen. And if you fly fairly often, you may see sometimes, depending on the airline, uh, that when one of the pilots wants to use the uh, lavatory. You'll get somebody that uh, might be a flight at- well, one of the flight attendants stand out there in front of the cockpit door and just cross their arms and say, "Just come at me, I dare <laughs> you uh and you you know something about that, Melissa in our training for the charters, we're supposed to block the front with the, one of the carts. Mm-hmm. so the training we block the front, and then one flight attendant has to go inside with the pilot, so um in case anything happens and then wait until the, the pilot goes to the bathroom the same procedure when he's going to come out every time you opening the door you have to have something i guess a barrier something to block passengers from trying to get in the flight on the flight deck and you know when you go up front and sit there you can log that flight time so if you do it enough times you'll be a pilot <laughs> <laughs> and and you know that's a very interesting point though that you make about uh, uh what are the flight attendants having to go back into the cockpit uh, because of course that came from that that crazy uh, crash in uh, was it in Germany? Uh, German wings or something? Yeah, like the that. German wings where the the, uh, the the pilot locked the other guy out of the uh, yeah. uh, out of the cockpit and uh, did whatever he did. Uh, I think it was the first officer. So they're they're trying to protect against that. But again, I always understood the putting the the trolley in front of the cockpit door or just back from it. But one flight attendant who is usually a lady standing there with her arms crossed, I never really thought that was that much of a deterrent. Well, you saw the look on their face, though, right? I mean, they're they're always very serious when they stand there, and they're watching everybody closely. So I would imagine by the time anybody got up there, they would be knocking on the bathroom door and say, hey, come help me here. Well, the good thing is that these days, since 9-11, on more than one occasion, the passengers have gotten involved to to deter someone that gets out of hand. In fact, you know, we should have asked you this when we were talking to you before, Melissa, but on your charters, do you have uh, the wacky passengers that the rest of the airline world has had? Actually, not in my second uh, company, but when I first flew for the first charter, it was we used to do a lot of Cuba flights. So um, we had a lot of passengers that were afraid of flying, try to drink before the flight for the nerves. And once it, you know, when you drink and you're flying, it's like three times, you feel it three times worse. So we had a few of those um, that got they got in you couldn't tell that they had drink like drink so much and then when you're in the air they get nervous they want to get up they don't want to yeah we've we had a few of those (laughs) (laughs) one that we had to detain and and do the whole procedure but yeah and do you have a supply of zip ties so you can yeah we do actually yeah (laughs) we have ways like they train us to like with the seat belts and zip ties how to detain somebody in the seat yeah, nice. Good. I'm glad you're trained like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> and duct tape works great too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we use everything, <laughs> everything you need to use to detain them. 
And then we usually have the authorities waiting for them as soon as, as, soon of as course. we land. Yep, of course. And that's when they sober up really quickly when they see the authorities, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's up with the geeks? Um, it's on a different kind of a note, sad note. Uh, I just uh, learned this yesterday. Uh, Dave Higdon, who you probably heard on the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast, passed away. I understand suddenly he was... 73. I met Dave in person just once at Sun and Fun. Uh, He and I had a rather lengthy conversation on the back deck of Sun and Fun radio. It was hard to have a short conversation with Dave. He was just one of those guys that had a million stories in the back of his head. Um, I mean, I knew him because he had written for a number of the uh, uh, aviation publications that I write for. And uh, he, not to mention, of course, he was on uncontrolled airspace since the beginning. Uh, and so I was so sad to hear that when one of my buddies from uh, called me on the first day of Oshkosh and said, hey, you know, Dave, Dave's gone. And, and uh, so uh, another friend of mine and I stole an idea from having lost a launch pad and Glenn uh, about about bricks, and I said, "Hey, Carrie, why don't we do one of those GoFundMe things and see if we can raise money to buy Dave a uh, a brick on the Brown Arch?" And she said, "I got it." And by the next morning, she'd already put the whole thing. Cassandra Bosco, she's a an event coordinator for NBAA. Uh, she always ran the press room uh, at NBAA events, and. Uh, Honest to goodness, she ran with this, and there's already, I think, twenty-two or twenty-three hundred dollars in the kitty for uh, a dick for uh, a dick for brave <laughs> little, little little for a brick for Dave, uh, and uh, I, I see you laughing there, Max <laughs> Max West. All right, hey, listen, you know that's the fun part of this show. When we screw up, we can admit that we screwed up. Uh, but anyway, Dave, Dave is certainly going to be missed because uh, uh, I, I spent a fair amount of time with him at the uh, NBA show in uh, in Vegas last year. And uh, and again, nobody could keep a story going like Dave. Uh, absolutely. And uh, and he's just like the other guys we've lost in the last year and some. Uh, he's also going to be sorely missed. Yeah, for sure. All right. Max Trescott. Anything new aviation-wise with you? Oh, boy. I have been doing a lot of flying. I had uh, 13 days in a row where I flew. (laughs) That's probably the longest stretch I can ever remember flying without a break. Finally, I took two days off. But that included three different uh, vision jet jobs, which was kind of fun since that's my uh, favorite aircraft. One of which was uh, I flew commercially up to Seattle and picked up a couple in a a rental uh, vision jet, flew them to uh, Jackson Wyoming for the weekend since it was their anniversary and then did the reverse, flew them back the following day to uh, Seattle and then commercial back to uh, to San Francisco. But the good news is it looks like we're going to have a, a rental available in the San Francisco Bay Area within the next coming month or two or something like that. So uh, there will finally be an opportunity for people to get experienced flights where they can uh, you know, learn 
get a little bit of ground instruction, uh, go fly the jet, experience it. Uh, and so anyway, anybody interested in doing that, let me know. I'm going to start making a list and checking it twice. And Rob, Rob you're already on a list, but it's the naughty list. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Max, what kinds of people rent a vision jet? Are they people who can, can afford it and just want to enjoy the experience or is it people who are contemplating purchasing one or, or what, who is it? Well, so I think uh, the best answer is it's people with vision. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's a variety of people. I've talked to a number of people. Uh, some of them uh, have one on order in the future and want to get some experience. Some of them are thinking, hey, I might like to buy one at some point in the future and would like to get some experience. Some know that they will never buy one, uh, but this is kind of their bucket list item of, man, I just love to fly that airplane because it's so cool. So I, I think it's a, a large variety of you know reasons that, that bring people to it. Um, oh, let me just mention real quick, because I forgot to, that uh, the GoFundMe uh, page that Rob mentioned for uh, Dave Higdon, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so, uh, you know, take a look at that. If you'd like to contribute, please, uh, please consider that. All right, uh, Rob, we mentioned Oshkosh before. You and I weren't there this year. Uh, next year, next year for sure. Some of the um, statistics are out for this year's show, and they are pretty impressive. I think we could say that Oshkosh is back, uh, and uh, this year certainly proved it. Uh, last year, it was it was good, but you could tell that it was still somewhat uh, reserved. And uh, but not this year. I mean, uh, they uh, let me find the. <laughs> well, I struggle to find the numbers because my page went dead. Oh. Uh, we had uh, this year. Uh, many people that came back saying, wow, same thing, Oshkosh is back. And uh, uh, Dick Nepinski up at uh, EAA said that it was a record-setting year. 650,000 people passed through the doors. 2021 was 608,000. So we beat it by 10%. Uh, That's a good one. 10,000 airplanes. Uh, in an 11-day period from July 21st through the 31st, uh, Whitman Airport, Whitman Regional Airport, saw 18,684 aircraft operations. That's hundred more than 120 an hour. That's a lot of airplanes. They had uh, more than 12,000 camping sites uh, that were taken, uh, 40,000 visitors in the campsites, 5,000 volunteers, uh, minus one because I wasn't up there this year volunteering, Uh, but uh, 803 commercial operators, more than 1,400 forums and presentations. It just, uh, oh, and here's the the most important figure of the entire show, nearly 800 media representatives from six different continents were at uh, at the event. Minus one, of course, because I couldn't get there this year. But uh, boy, it was it, and the weather on top of it was absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful the whole week. Yeah, and uh, uh, one thing that I think is also impressive and important is uh, international attendees, uh, because of course of the COVID restrictions, there've been issues with that in the past few years. 
But uh, attendees from 92 countries outside the United States uh, were there, um, which is uh, just one behind the record total from 2019. So it's great that the international folks were able to come back. Well, and and look at Glenn, uh, who some of you didn't know, but uh, that we talked about earlier that passed away. I mean, Glenn came from New Zealand every year to make Air Venture. And, of course, we know the guys... uh, uh, Stephen Grant from Down Under in in Australia came a couple of times, but that's that's a really 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 long drive down to uh, that part of the world. Yes. Takes a while. Melissa, do you know when your next uh, uh, next adventure will be, or do you do you wait to see when it shows up? You know, yeah, yeah. Usually, um, I've been flying this whole summer with the. Uh, with the family that I usually fly. So they usually have a schedule like a month. So they usually give me an idea of the flight. So I fly again on the 8th, the 9th. I have a few flights coming up before school starts. <laughs> good, good. Well, enjoy those. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you fly with Thank multiple you. owners, it sounds like. How does how do you fit the multiple owners into your schedule? I know. Lately, it's been hard because I've had to decline uh, sometimes because in this, this summer, it's been like everybody's flying, but um, usually during the year it works out. Like I, I, I fly, but not as often as I've been flying this past three months. Mm. All right, we've got a little bit of listener mail uh, to talk about. Uh, Andrew wrote in, and this was an interesting fact. Uh, maybe David can uh, can check this. This this may be why David's wearing the T-shirt he's wearing. But Andrew wrote in said regarding episode six hundred ninety three. President Theodore Roosevelt took a flight on the Wright Flyer, thereby becoming the first president to fly on an aircraft. So I thought that was a little interesting historical tidbit. And I bet it was a really short flight. <laughs> Probably. It, 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 yeah. But, uh, but he wasn't, in all fairness, he wasn't president at the time. Uh, yeah, future President Theodore Roosevelt took the flight. Ah. Yeah, but seriously, for those people that don't like flying, can you imagine showing them the right flyer, which is a bunch of sticks and some wires yeah. and some cloth-covered wings and saying, hey, Wanna let's ride. go for a ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about uh, – well, they didn't have flight attendants and commercial carriers, so there was no alcohol. And Well, actually, there may have been. You know, if somebody said, do you want to go for a ride in the right flyer? I might have had a belt or two. <laughs> I think so. And, and Teddy Roosevelt was not a tiny guy, so that's what I'm saying. This this flight was probably measured in yards in terms of the, the distance of the flight. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was like the right flyer three. It wasn't like the the the. I mean, it was it was the improved one that they had been flying. So, but still, yeah. sticks and wire and cloth. Oh yeah, it sticks and cloth, and you know, and you you you'll be able to see it again. Um, we got the announcement today that October fourteenth, um, um, the Smithsonian downtown is going to reopen. So you'll you'll be able to go see the Wright Flyer in its own exhibit, as well as six new, brand new exhibits at the Downtown Museum. So the renovations finally coming due. David, are there any Wright Flyer replicas that actually are flown these days? 
there have been right flyer replicas there i don't think there's any currently huh. that fly just it, like there are no gustav whitehead replicas that are flying <laughs> or or any at all maybe okay well you know i do remember up at oshkosh maybe 10 years ago maybe a little longer they had a replica of the right flyer that uh anybody that wanted to fly it could could test out and see the results on the simulator screen yeah. about how you flew the air. And I remember laying on the wing, and part of the way you maneuvered it was to move your hips left or and right. right. And warp then there the was wing. the stick uh, for the ver- – and I went, whoa. I I would be within sight of the ground. Uh, actually, it would be soft ground. Boy, I mean, that must have been really the, the Wright brothers had no fear, I guess. Hmm. Well, they were flying over sand also. That kind of reduces some of the fear. At low altitude. Yeah. Still. Better than being over water. Yep. Yep. Noah wrote in. Uh, he said, Geeks, hope this email finds you all well. He said, I really enjoyed episode 707, 707, and could not have come at a better time for me. He said, sadly, two years ago, my grandfather died from a stroke. And on July 14th, 2022, he was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. He was in the Air Force for 31 years, six of those years flying the KC-135 and the RC-135 as a navigator, logging over 14,000 hours, flying reconnaissance missions over Russia and many other missions having a distinguished flying cross and many others. In 1964, the island of Guam, or on the island of Guam, he met a Pan Am stewardess for none other than the Boeing 707 and was married to her for 54 years. Excuse me, does does that mean he married the stewardess or the airplane? Uh, Hopefully it was the stewardess, but... Oh, okay, I just, just wondered, okay. My grandpa told me... I have questions. You always have questions. My grandpa told me countless stories and taught me so much about the aircraft. I listened to the podcast some days later and brought tears to my eyes as all his stories came back to me, as if he was sitting right next to me again, telling me again. So thank you all for the episode, and I hope you all know it made me and my entire family happy. And so that's from Noah. And I think that's... uh, very cool. We uh, we love uh, personal stories like that that tend to uh, put fuel in our tanks and keep us going for this little uh, this little experiment. And then Rob wrote in, not our Rob, a different Rob. Dear geeks, uh, he attached a uh, a story, an ABC news story about Rex Airlines, regional operator in Australia planning to retrofit some of its airliners with electric motors and trial them in 2024. So this seems like a pretty aggressive uh, uh, schedule here. Rex has 57 Saab 340s in its fleet, as well as some 737s. This Australian airline has uh, invested with Dovetail Electric Aviation. They're going to develop and certify the retrofitting of electric airplane, air, yeah, electric engines in some of its existing regional planes. They plan to do trials in 2024, and they'll take out the existing engine and slap in, well, it's probably more than slap in, but uh, replace it with an electric motor. And 
The fuel sources are interesting, supported by a combination of both batteries and hydrogen. And I'd like to pass along a marketing tip to this airline. In general, you don't want to name your airline Rex. <laughs> no, it's R-E-X, I should say. Yeah, not W-R-E. It's pronounced the same. <laughs> but it's pronounced the same. I, you know, that didn't even occur to me, but dang, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode is Melissa Gonzalez. Melissa, again, thanks so much for telling us your story, and it's been a thank you guys. delightful conversation. Wish you uh, continued success. So your husband supports your flying, huh? He's uh, uh, comfortable with the profession that you've chosen. Well, at the beginning, he wasn't too happy, but um, now he knows it's what I love. I, I, I stopped flying for like a year, and he saw how I missed it and everything. And one day he told me, look, if that's what you love to do, go ahead. And then the next day I was in an interview. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. You have such a supportive husband. Yeah, I do. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Have a good night. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Uh, the, direct link, the direct link for the show notes to this episode is at airplanegeeks.com slash 710. You can reach us at email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, David, any uh, closing thoughts? No, I'm just imagining what it's like to getting on a global and flying around the world. Sorry, a bit, <laughs> bit jealous there. Um, and getting paid for it. Right hey, I, I won't even get paid for it. I'll just, uh, just, uh, just the opportunity. Um, now, and you can, of course, find me at the American Helicopter Museum and definitely check out the list of books, the book, tour that we're going to have over the next couple of months um, and they are all going to be zoom calls so they are televised so if you if you want contact me and i'll show you how we can get hooked up with that and of course you can join our slack listener team and we haven't talked about it for a while but if you send us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com yeah well that one works too actually well yeah you could send it the geeks at airplanegeeks.com you can join our Slack listener team and um, join the conversation all week long. Great. And Rob Mark, how about you? Uh, they'll certainly find us. Uh, find us. I it always. I always say that. There's always an us like with you. Someone here, and it's really just me. But I'm thinking about. Uh, He's got the uh, royal we on his mind. Yeah. yeah, I don't understand that. But uh, and Scott uh, Spangler, of course, is Jetwine's editor, and. Uh, and he and I have been putting that together for many years. Uh, but anyway, uh, also, you'll find me uh, within the pages of Business and Commercial Aviation uh, at the Aviation Week group. And uh, who knows where else? But next year, Oshkosh. Yes, for sure. How about you, Max Trescott? You going to Oshkosh next year? Oh, probably, because that's where we're all going to meet up, right? That's right. All right. it's a It's a plan. Let's do it. Let's see. So you can, if I'm not up in the skies, you can find me by going out to aviationnewstalk.com, click on contact at the top of the page, and of course, also check out the podcast of the same name. All right. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. Actually, you can't find me there, but you can see where I am at 30,000feet.com. But Max, you're right here. I am right here, but not for more than another minute or so. <laughs> <laughs> So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. 
keep the blue side up. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening.